Thank you, Pastor Lisa. Hey, good morning, Harbor Life. Uh, as uh, Lisa said, my name is Ben. I'm actually not going to preach from the book of Matthew, and that is, uh, she didn't know that, and that's okay because when your pastor, Pastor Brent, called me in, on Thursday and said, hey, uh, I have COVID, would you preach for me? And I knew that our other available uh, pastor to preach was in Puerto Rico. I said, yep, but you're getting whatever's in the chamber. So uh, I hope you're okay with that. I, I do think you will look forward to the series starting next week then, uh, Honest Questions People Ask. If you have a Bible, if you want to open it up to Ephesians 2, verse 19, or turn your device on, just head there and uh, hold a bookmark for a moment. I should mention that I have the unique privilege of pastoring City Harbor Church, which is our expression of Harbor Churches, in and around um, really the city of Grand Rapids, the urban center of the city. And so I, is that me, Greg? All right. It's one of those days, huh? Uh, so I, uh, we, we really are kind of an experimental thing and uh, I'd love to tell you more about it, but so much of what I want to share with you this morning rises up out of that experience, and it's beautiful to be able to share this with you today, because in so many ways, what we'll experience together at the waters later, that's been mentioned so many times uh, at Geneva, as we uh, baptize more people as a large church family, this really is the prequel and the sequel of the event that we're going to experience this afternoon. That's essentially what I want to share with you. You know, several years ago, I adopted a practice in my own life, born, just to be honest with you, out of the desire not to be a hypocrite. So I've been a pastor for 10 years. I've stood on stages and many times called people to invest and live God's mission of, we heard it earlier from Pastor Lisa, to make disciples, to teach people about Jesus, to baptize them, everything that we're doing. And I've always kind of wrestled with this tension myself of how do I actually do that in addition to invite people to do it. And so uh, a new practice for me was for my family and I, we were living in Northwest Indiana at the time, and we... Uh, had all kinds of, just like here, you know, local places you could go to eat. And I just decided that whenever I had a meeting that was off-site, whenever I was going to sit with somebody, whenever I just needed to get out of the office and do some work not in my uh, normal study, I was going to pick the same place to go to so that I could start to build relationships with the staff and the regulars, the folks that are there, and have the opportunity to sort of invest myself into the fabric of the lives of the different people so that uh, we got to know each other a little bit and I got to reveal at least some of the hope that I have in Jesus. And so uh, luckily for me, right down from the road of the house that we had just bought, a new place opened up. It was a coffee shop by day, a brewery by night, and unapologetically, I love both, and they offered uh, free snacks because they were trying to drive clientele. You could live here. I mean, it was, it was an incredible place. And so I chose to work there often and uh, got to know the proprietors, the folks who owned the place. We had a theology and philosophy pub group that would meet on Thursday night, which the owners love because men and women would come together once a month and argue like the big existential questions of life while buying and drinking the product that the brewery owners sold. And we built great relationships and we got to, got to meet people. I loved everything about this place. I just had one complaint. 
So if I were to fill out a comment card for them, at the very bottom where it says, do you have anything else you want to add? I would just write two words, giant Jenga. <laughs> I don't know if you know what Jenga is. It's this little tabletop game you play. You know, it's like three blocks stacked on three blocks. And it's small, and you take turns uh, pulling or pushing a block. And like in Jenga, there's no winners. There's just losers. You, you play until somebody knocks the tower over and, and the thing falls off its foundation and makes a big crash and everybody cheers. Well, what they had at this uh, coffee shop brewery was not a small tabletop Jenga. Like, I'm six feet tall and it looked me in the eyes. It was this massive Jenga. And back then, this is, you know, maybe uh, eight years ago or so, all of the interior designers for places like this, they went for industrial you know what I mean? It was an unfinished basement. It was like uh, paved concrete and the walls were painted. Everything was hard surfaces. So if even five to ten people were in the place and they started talking, it got really loud. Which means that Jenga tower, when it fell, it was going to be really startling in that huge cavernous brewery. And so there was a social contract that nobody ever talked about, but myself and all the other patrons adopted, which was nobody plays giant Jenga. Because it's just going to make a giant noise when it eventually goes down. And so I remember one night I was meeting somebody there, and I remember it was for a really important conversation. I have no idea what we talked about, because as I was sitting my back to giant Jenga, I heard this unfamiliar sound I wasn't used to hearing in the space. And it was that clicking noise of little wood blocks slowly being moved and people gasping and holding their breath while they were playing, hoping that it wouldn't fall. And I just felt like this little sense of anxiety start to rise. And I couldn't hear a single thing the guy sitting across from the table from me was saying because I'm thinking, oh my goodness, when that thing crashes, it's going to be so loud. Some of you love roller coasters. Some of you live for the drop that you don't know is coming. I hate it. <laughs> it drove me crazy. And so, you know, eventually I think what the people found is the other reason nobody ever played this giant Jenga tower was it was really well structurally built. It never fell. So this went on for like 45 minutes, and then I think somebody got bored. And what do you want to do if you want to nuke the Jenga game? Like what is the guaranteed way to end it? You go for a low block, right? So somebody pulled it out, and the thing crashed over, and it was just as startling as I thought it was, and like 10 patrons had to be rushed to the hospital and treated for heart attack. I made that last part up. You get the idea. Why am I telling you all this? See, there is a metaphor for us in giant Jenga. And if you've ever played just small little tabletop Jenga, you'd realize this too if, if you were there with me in that moment. It is that the physics of a game like Jenga are amplified about a thousand times over when you play with bigger blocks. And today, what I'd like to talk with you about are even bigger blocks, even higher stakes, not a structure made of, you know, little tiny wood blocks put together that we push and pull and hope stays on the foundation. I want to talk about the structure that is being built by God's own hands, the church, his people. 
And specifically, what I want to talk about is what is the foundation of the church? I'm not talking about a physical building. I'm not talking about our gathering here right now. I'm talking about you and me, those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus everywhere for all time. What is the thing on which the whole structure rests? And Paul the Apostle who is a pastor writing to his church in Ephesus, gives us an answer. So I had you turn to that passage if you go there now. You know, up until this point, Paul has spent a chapter and a half explaining the reality of what happens when Jesus changes your life. Something we'll see in Living Technicolor this afternoon on Lake Geneva. Basically, Paul has been saying, we are a new kind of humanity, those of us that meet Jesus. And so then he turns in verse 19, chapter 2 of his letter to the Ephesians, And he says, so here's a picture of what it looks like for you together, the church. And let me pick it up there. He says, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him... You also are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm sure you've heard the phrase before, a building is only as strong as its foundation. And that's absolutely true here. And we're not talking about a physical building, but really an analogy that Paul is using, talking about the household of God that God is building, putting brick by brick and block by block. And what I want to examine with you today and just ask the question is, what are the low blocks of his church? What is the stuff on which this organism, this this living structure rests? And there are lots of opinions about what is really the fundamental beginning of the church. Lots of opinions about the church's purpose, lots of opinions about what upholds the church, and we live in a society today that loves to, uh, in some ways, sort of say, hey, this is really how the church speaks and acts and lives in our world, and what I want to show us, at least in part today, is at least according to the scripture, there is no matter of opinion when it comes to the foundation of the church. There's clarity. It's not an up-for-grabs thing, But here's what the church rests on. According to Paul, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and Christ Jesus himself. So let's unpack that a little bit. There are these words that we use or we read when we open the scriptures. And it's easy if you've spent a lot of time with the scriptures to sort of uh, overlook them and get used to them. And we sing them and we say them. And we don't really stop to ask, what does this mean? And I think one of those words actually is apostle. And I don't know if you've ever stopped to wonder, what does apostle mean? It's also a word uh, that gets mobilized and used in some strange ways as well. So biblically speaking, the word apostle comes from this Greek word. And I know uh, Brent is your pastor, and so I know you've heard some Greek in this place. And so the word apostle comes from a Greek word. It sounds almost the exact same, and it means very literally a sent one, a sent one, somebody who's on a mission, an apostle. 
there are many people named apostles in the scriptures. Peter, James, John, maybe you know and have heard some of those names, Thomas. Paul, who's writing this letter, is also known as Paul the Apostle because Paul had this radical conversion moment. He met Jesus in a vision on the road to Damascus. He was a great persecutor of the church, and Jesus said, I want you to transform your life, and I want you to serve me. I'm sending you with this message. And the message is what we call the gospel, another one of those weighty words that gets thrown around a lot, but we've sung about it and we've declared it. We'll see it in, in really real life this afternoon, and that is that people who meet Jesus are never the same again. Because Jesus is the way that God is reconciling all things, us included, to himself. And so the apostles are the sent ones carrying the good news message about what Jesus has done in the world. And our hope is in the same message. And so what makes what Paul is saying here to the church in Ephesus so radical is that he is saying right at the foundation of this household of God's people, are the apostles. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And it might be easy to take that statement at face value and just think, okay, that's a historical statement. And in some ways, it certainly is. Uh, that there are things today that we do in, these, uh, in this space right here, for example, Harbor Life, that are drawn from some of those early days of the church. But he's saying more than that. He's not just saying it's the men, but he's saying it's their apostolic lifestyles. And we know this because Paul tells us another thing about this metaphorical structure that he's using to talk about the church. And it is when he says it has this cornerstone. I don't know if you ever walked into a, a building before. I know lots of churches have this. Cornerstones today are very different than cornerstones of what Paul is talking about. And so, like, if you walk into one of our Harbor Church's buildings, usually there's, like, a, uh, a block. It could be from a previous building that had been replaced by a new building, and it's ornamental, and it's usually right by the entryway, this big gray square, it'll say, you know, this church established in 18... 18- whatever, right? Or, or maybe you'll see that at the, uh, the opening of your doctor's office or hospital or something to kind of mark, inform the history of this building. But when Paul talks about a cornerstone, the stuff that they used back then was much more about function. The cornerstone of a building in the first century was this huge behemoth rock, And in fact, a lot of these buildings which are no longer standing anymore, the thing that is left is the cornerstone. Nobody knows how to move them. Nobody knows how they got there, first of all, because they're thousands and thousands of pounds, tons. They weigh an immense amount, but also they're just enormously huge. They are the center, the beginning of the foundation. And from that corner, the whole building is built out. And the function of that stone, I'm no architect, but what I understand is it actually set the building on a right angle. Because I don't know about you, but I haven't seen many rhombus-shaped buildings that are standing. You know, like a, a good square building will stand for a long time. It is the building that actually sets the square, the, the path, the angle for the rest of the building. This cornerstone is so key to the function of the thing standing. And so when Paul calls Jesus the cornerstone of the foundation of the church, what he's really saying, and his original readers would have known this, and and it's good for us to know as well, 
is that Jesus' own life, his example, and his teaching really is in every way the right angle and the square and the beginning of the foundation on which all of the entire church rests. Now, what is that? When Paul says, friends, as a part of the church, you are built on the apostles, the prophets, and Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. Well, those apostles and their lifestyle, they were taking their cue from Jesus, which 42 times in the New Testament is said to have been sent. That same Greek word for apostle used for Jesus. In fact, some of his last words to the apostles, his disciples, who were sent with that great commission, some of his last words in John 20, 21, he says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. A, a really rough, horrible translation my Greek professors would hate is you could say Jesus is saying to his disciples in the church, as the Father has apostled me, so I am apostling you. The point of all of this, back to our big question, like what is it that the church rests on? What makes the church the true church? The measurement by which the rest of the building being considered right when it comes to the church is Jesus' own sentness. His life is a template for the blueprint for the church. So his whole amazing story, taking on human flesh, humbling himself, suffering, dying, rising in triumph, being seated at the right hand of God the Father is actually all in the service of God's mission toward his people. This good news that we were talking about, that God seeks to reconcile all things and all people to himself, all through Jesus. Jesus is the sent one. And so when we ask what is the foundation of the church, the answer is the church is built at its core as a community that that is apostolic. Said another way plainly, Jesus' church is a sent church. That's actually the fundamental nature of the church. Anything else that does not connect to God's mission is not the whole picture of Jesus' church. This is the call on every Christian's life. And I think it's important to draw the the, the clear comparison, not just on those that stand on stages with microphones, but friends, on every person who calls on Jesus and says, Jesus, I want to devote and give my entire life to you. The call on every Christian's life is this mission. At Harbor, we've articulated it in a particular way to talk about our sentness. Maybe you know it. You could say it with me. We, we say often at Harbor Churches, we exist together to help people find their way back to God. Fundamentally, Jesus' church is a sent church. The true church is marked by its participation with God's mission. And by the way, this isn't like some new radical idea. We see it here in the scriptures. This is also something the church has said for years and years. So Paul, after he wrote these words a, a couple of hundred of years later, before there ever even was a Protestant strain of the church, there was a gathering of church leaders across the world in the year 325. And East and West came together. They called this group the Council of Nicaea. And they decided, let's work together to come up with some basic statements, stuff that matters to us. And here's what they said about the church. It came out in this document called the Nicene 
Creed. Maybe you're familiar with it. Uh, it's like the Apostles' Creed. They said that we believe in four things about the church. One, holy, Catholic, and meaning by that that there's a universal, that the church in Africa is also a part of the church here in Granville. One, holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. So that means for centuries, actually for millennia, the church has been professing together its identity as the sent church and marked by its participation with God's mission. I love the way Christopher Wright put it. He's a theologian, a missiologist, and he is famous for saying, it is not so much that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. It's just a slight shift from what we so often think. Okay, so that being said, that's a lot of theory. How does it land for us here, Harbor Life in Granville, as the local expression of God's church here? This is the gift of being a guest preacher, especially a guest preacher who says uh, yes on Thursday, is like, I get to leave after this, and if you hate it, if I start a fire, if I cause a problem, you know their emails are lisa.stonehouse at Harbor Churches and brent.clatter. Like, like I, don't, what, I can start fires and then take off in peace. I can say controversial stuff. Hopefully nothing so far has been that, but here's the deal. I want to draw our attention to something as the church that is both problem, but I believe it can also be opportunity. And so my family and I, we live uh, near downtown Grand Rapids on the west side. Uh, I love that you're right off 196. It's a short commute in the morning uh, from my house to get here with you this morning. And we spend a lot of time with people in the city. And, and so do the folks in our church community as well. And one of the constant complaints as we spend time with people is that the things this Bible says about the people of God are rarely reflected in actual practice. That there's a gap. This is just the experience of people that, that we meet between theory and reality. And so I think it's just worth naming, like for a lot of people who would consider themselves Christians, in our context here in West Michigan, everything that we've been talking about so far this morning, this, this is a radical idea. This idea that we are called to this thing together. I, I think in, in so many ways there's a mindset I found that uh, contradicts a lot of this. It's pervasive. And none of these things are bad things. I just want to seek to nuance them a little bit further. And so, so often, you know, I, I grew up as a part of the church and spent a lot of time in the church. And I have a lot of friends who are outside the church. And when we think about mission... And we think about really this sort of shared thing among all Christians to be sent to the world with this incredibly good news. It boggles me and blows my mind that we also think in terms of like missions department. As if this is a thing that we give to those special crazy people. And there's nothing wrong with having that either. Like we should empower those things. And yet I think it's something that's pervasive. At least that's my anecdotal experience. This is also backed by research as well. Uh, really the, the thing that got me thinking about all that I'm sharing with you this morning is a study that was done this year 
by one of our Harbor Church's mission partners. You may have heard of uh, Mission India before there in the area. They do amazing work in the country of India, and they worked together with Barna, which is a Christian research organization, people much smarter than me, uh, who love and live for statistics. I think Andy professed his love for spreadsheets. Uh, Y'all would be friends. You know, it's just a wiring that I don't have. And they did this work together where they started to survey a sample set of churches And they asked just around mentalities that have to do with what we're talking about, the apostolic nature of the church. And particularly, they asked a question around the idea, is missions for all Christians either a calling for a select few, like missions department, or is it a mandate for everybody? And I'm going to ask Reese, if you want to put up on the screen, uh, there's a chart. I don't know how well you can see that from your seat. If you want to email me, I'd be glad to, to send this to you. Uh, you can also get the study from Mission India. It's a really fascinating study. But let me just tell you, if you look at the second section of green and blue bars there, there are statements about missions here. And the second one is that sort of exclusive, like, missions is for everybody. It says, missions is a mandate for all Christians. Now, the dark blue bar at the bottom, where it says 85% agreed with this statement, that's pastors at churches. And then, the light, sort of tealish bar below the green one, right right above that, again, in the middle set, 42%, that is practicing Christians. So, less than half, by comparison, People who are doing the thing, who are sewing in, who are, who are bought in, they believe in this thing, they believe in Jesus, 42% do, are the only ones that agree with that statement that missions is a mandate for all Christians. Now, while you absorb that, let me make a couple disclaimers. First of all, my goal is not to pit pastors against the people of the church. Uh, if you've ever wondered if pastors are wrong, Meet my wife and ask her. She'll give you firsthand experience. Pastors are often wrong. Uh, Second of all, if this research accurately reflects us in this room, that means I've known that I've spoken for about 25 minutes with half of you thinking I'm crazy. And that means that this is a wildly uphill climb together. And uh, I I guess I'm just, I I love it. So I'm glad to be here. And also, I think for context, one thing that's important. So missions is a mandate for Christians. You might be wondering, well, did the people who answered this, like, were they thinking particularly, you know, pack your duffel and go far to the end of the world? Because I could understand that. Actually, I would think the, the bars would be smaller. Because I'm not saying that that's for everybody. That's a particular version of missions. What do they mean? And even in the study, they, they give us what's a really great definition of all we're talking about today. And they said that the majority of respondents defined missions, basically, as sharing about Jesus with others. See, for me, the language that's most important in this study, on that graphic, is the distinction of thinking between missions, sharing about Jesus with others, as either a calling for some or a mandate for all. And again, that's actually not a very heartening graph (laughs) for me. Um, But I think problem can become opportunity. In fact, that's what I believe God does with difficulty. I wonder, you know, having made the case already over and over that Jesus' church is a sent church 
that God's mission is for everyone. I wonder what's really happening here. And I wonder about the disconnect. And I've, as I've spent some time sort of sitting and thinking about this, and my world has been kind of transformed and rocked by the experience of planting City Harbor as well. One of the things that I've really had to wrestle with, again, personally, is I feel like, like there's some ownership as a pastor I can take in this. And again, none of these things are bad things, but I want to nuance them a little bit for us. So often, in, over the years of, of doing ministry, I've been a part of churches that say things like, would you please invite your friends to church? Which is a good thing. And I want to say, if a friend invited you to church this morning, I'm really glad you're here. Because with what I'm about to say, you have my permission to elbow them in the ribs and just say like, hey, are you hearing this? I want, I want you to live this. Like that, that's a positive thing. But I wonder if sometimes when we say that over and over, bring your friends to church and some, you know, amazing uh, worship team will lead us and a professional speaker will speak and speak to us. I, I just wonder if we're starting to create a misconception that only those that are qualified to share with others about Jesus are the ones who should be doing the job. You talk about perpetuating bad theology. That couldn't be further from the truth. According to Ephesians 2, Jesus' church is a sent church, and God's mission is for everyone. And so what I want to say to you this morning is, yes, invite your friends to church, and also live, if you claim Christ, as the sent church in the places where you live, work, and play. Because, in fact, not only are you qualified, you are called. This is a mandate, and you have so much more credibility with your friends, with your coworkers, with your family members, depending on the family member, than I do. So much more, because you live in the fabric of their lives. It's always helped me so much to know that these disciples who became apostles, the Bible makes a note of saying, they were unschooled, ordinary men. They weren't superstars, they weren't rock star presenters. They're just everyday people, like us. People ask me about evangelism because I think of our church planning work. And one of the verses I love to share is lesser used when we talk about this idea of sharing Jesus with others. And I love what 1 Peter 3.15 says, where Peter, writing to his own church in that first century context, invites the church to always have an answer for the hope that lies in you. Which, if you sort of reverse engineer that, if I were to preach that, I would say it's your responsibility, Harbor Life, to live questionable lives. <laughs> that people would look at you and go, what is your deal? What is it about you? Like, wh why are you so different? Not that you're perfect. It, it may be in the fact that being imperfect, you make an apology, and that makes somebody go like, what is the deal? This was the mandate for the early church. Realize, actually, the early church meeting in homes under Roman persecution, at least until about the Council of Nicaea, they didn't do the invite your friends to church thing. You know why? If you invited the wrong person to church, the end result might be, I have my head on a stake next week because we get reported. <laughs> Here's what happened. Early Christians lived radically different as a counterculture, a creative minority. I'm not talking about militant. I'm not talking about political. What I'm talking about is they were just different people. And as their friends, families, coworkers, business partners looked in on their lives, they were like, what's the deal? You do parenting different. You have a whole community around you 
to raise this child. Like, what's the deal? You do finances different. You give things away, like on purpose. What's the deal? You do ethics different. You live your life different. You have a hope that's different. What is the thing for you? And that's why Peter says, always have an answer for the hope that lies in you. That's how the early church caught fire. Sharing with others about Jesus and the everyday fabric of life. So if you take one thing away from this today, if you claim Christ, what I want to say is everybody gets to play. His mission is for everybody. You are, the scripture says, members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, right? One giant Jenga tower. Okay, that's me, not the Bible. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Jesus' church is a sent church and his mission is for everybody. Can I just be honest with you? I could just end there, but one of my fears is I would risk you thinking I actually enjoy and am good at this stuff. And maybe I'm just the weirdo who gets up and eats apostolic Wheaties for breakfast. And you'd be right up to the point of weirdo. But apostolic Wheaties, no way. Uh, when I sit with my friends who, are, who have all kinds of pain from the church, who honestly, sometimes I don't even know how to bridge the gap of the questions that they are asking and the answers that I thought that I had that are no longer, like, actually valid. My palms sweat. This stuff makes me nervous. I, I really, just honestly, I would love as well, if there was a professional to hand these things off to, I would love to. And, like, I do this for my job. I, I just want to demystify this thing. It's scary. It scares me. And one of the realities that I've learned, honestly, is my family and myself, we've been living a life of repentance over the last year and a half, planting City Harbor. We realized for over 10 years, we were participating in sort of this church bubble, it's easy to do, and we didn't do the stuff that we preached. We weren't practitioners, and so as we've sort of taken a step out and, and tried to be courageous and fallen on our faces many times, like, this stuff is scary. However, the thing that doesn't get said enough is that it is a wonderful joy as well. This is principle. Jesus tells us, if you're my friends, if you do what I command, right? If you love me, do the things that I've called you to. Live the life and the teachings of Christ, that chief cornerstone. There is a joy and intimacy with Jesus in finding yourself in that space where you're like, I don't know if I'm going to say the right thing, but I'm going to show up here and sit with this person and maybe even just be present and love them in the hope that my hope would be revealed to them. There's a joy to be had. If you haven't tasted of it, I want to tell you, you're missing out. And I think that should be celebrated more often than, than not. I also want to say, really simply, and this doesn't get said enough either, is even in the big grand scheme of this idea of being a sent church, if you're somebody who's going, okay, I'm there, Ben. I want to participate. I'm not exactly sure how. This scares the heck out of me. I just want to say you can do it. You can do it. And it's actually through taking a step. 
One of the uh, just sort of things we come back to over and over again at, at our community, City Harbor, is we talk about taking one step outside of our comfort zone. I do not recommend taking a leap outside of your comfort zone. Just take one step. What is one small thing, one incremental shift you can make today to transform the way you live an apostolic life? if you're walking with Jesus. And so let me give you a couple of ideas. These are practical, actual steps. You may want to write one down or type one down if it, if it agrees with you. Like, hey, I could do that. It takes real intentionality. The first one is like one of those, duh, but we don't do it things. You should pray for your neighbors. You should pray for your friends. You should pray for your coworkers and just see what happens. <laughs> Pray for the people that you see, that you wave, you know, smiley lawnmower guy, water cooler guy, all, all of them. Just pray. All great missionary movements start that way. I mentioned in the beginning, there's a, a practice in my life. I still do it to, to today. I have my coffee shop. I have the spot that I go to, and I'm trying to just cultivate relationships and actually get to know people more than sort of treat them as the mediator of a, a goods and service. Just choose to go to one place. Go to one place with your family. Dare to become a regular so that you can build relationships with people. If, if you're one of those folks that says, I don't know if I even know anybody in my life who is asking questions about Jesus, that's a great place to start. Uh, actually learn your neighbor's names. This is something, I'll confess, this happened to me just a couple of weeks ago. In fact, uh, we've met most of our neighbors. We had the opportunity to move in and, and connect with them and, and do some stuff with our church and our community. And there were some neighbors across the street that I had yet to meet. Something happened in their world. It finally gave me the opportunity to walk over and just say, hey, I'm sorry I've never introduced myself before. Like, I'm Ben. Can I get your names? Like, that's so endearing to people. Here's the deal. If you want to be punk rock... You want to do something really radical. Does anybody like to grill? Like, come, this is America. You know, like, it, come on. Take your grill. It has wheels on it. I don't know if you know this or not. Most of them have wheels. And move it from the backyard, the beautiful manicured American backyards that we have, and do something crazy. Put it in the front yard just for one afternoon. Put a couple extra hot dogs. Just see what happens. If you want to go crazy, if you're like, okay, I need more than just a, a baby step, you have no idea what a free hot dog could do to initiate an incredible conversation with a passerby that you may have never met before. Just try it. Uh, does anybody have a dog? Okay, in my city, uh, people love dogs. I'll be walking my dog, and they'll talk to him before they'll talk to me. Just take your dog for a walk. Use your dog in an apostolic way. That, that is the, my, my hope for us. Friends, if you need to know why this matters, I said in the beginning it's prequel and sequel to what we'll do together at the beach this afternoon. Just watch the water this afternoon. The fundamental nature of the church is sent because of this wildly good news. Jesus was sent for us. This is verse in Romans, where Paul again writes, beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Our call is to be that for him because Jesus done it for us. And I pray for you here at Harbor Life that you would find unique, creative ways to do it together and apart and relationally wherever you live, wherever you work, wherever you play, to be the sent church of Jesus and live his mission. That's for everyone, just in the same way that we're trying to do it in this city as well. His church is a sent church.
God's mission is for everybody. Let's pray. God, would you uh, just refresh us again in this amazingly good news that Jesus, the whole thing, is built on you. We sang that earlier. Our hope is founded on you, not only who you are, but what you've done. And Lord, you've been sent for us. And I want to pray now for any person in this room that is doubting whether or not that's true. Would you reveal to them that you have loved them with a wildly radical and an amazing love in Jesus Christ. And really show yourself to them, God. But show them that your heart is to reconcile them to you. And Lord, I pray also for the people in this room that would say, wow, this feels like a really big challenge. I agree with everything that's been said, and yet I don't even know where to get started. Just the idea of learning my neighbor's names is difficult. Lord, I pray for them just that you would fill them with the fruit of the Holy Spirit of faithfulness. God, I pray for just a a uniqueness of all kinds of crazy stories to pop up in this community, Harbor Life, over this week. Uh, names learned, conversations had, grills relocated to the front yards, and Lord, the beginning of relationships forged over coffee and conversation. Lord, would you open us up by your Holy Spirit to just be sensitive to what you're already doing so that we can partner with it together. Lord, I thank you for the work and the witness of Harbor Life Church and all of the Harbor Churches. And Lord, we just celebrate so much that your mission has not and will not fail. And we see the fruit of it down on the water at Geneva this afternoon. And so we give you great praise, Lord, that you are the God who transforms lives. Jesus, as you have been sent, you send us. May we be worthy of those words. It's in your name. The church prays together saying, amen.